0: Welcome, and thank you for tuning into the season finale of season eight of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most gruesome, the most horrific, the most high-profile homicide cases in Maryland, they are discussed, they are examined, and they are profiled. We have finally reached the end, the end, the season finale of the top Parasite Cases in Maryland of Season 8. But before I move on to who made the number one spot, I want to give a special shout-out or a special thank you to Miss Angela Null, who sent condolences for the loss of my mother. That was really special and sweet, you know, to me, and it was very much highly appreciated. Now, speaking of mothers, now, according to LegalDictionary.com, the word Parasite is defined as the murder of a close relative it could be like your siblings like your brother or sister or the victim could be like an aunt your uncle or cousin or any other uh, relative that you would consider close like a caregiver or something like that you would think that the murder of a parent would warrant an automatic life sentence but apparently it doesn't especially not in the state of Maryland and mostly all of the murderers in this season They have already served their time they have already been released or they are on their way to being released and uh for those listeners i've said this throughout the um the entire season that for the listeners who are truly familiar with me and my story um no i will not be profiling or discussing the murder of my father that did not make the number one spot because that case has already been profiled for tv one several times And that's pretty much old news now. You can already um, check all of that out on my Payback episode, my Justice by Any Means episode, or you can click on the episode episode, um, entitled, Why I Do What I Do for this podcast. Anyway, um, getting all of that out the way, it was a little bit of a struggle this season, I'm not going to lie, but we did, like I said, we did make it to the season finale, We've talked about the kids who have uh killed their parents because they were like mentally ill, like Jason DeLong. And we have discussed the kids who have killed a parent because they done kirked out supposedly under the pressures of not basically fucking up or basically not living up to being perfect, like the case of Lou and Powell. Now all of these cases were notable and notorious in their own right, but this next case of Parasite is not only one of the most notorious Parasite cases occurring in Maryland, but the savagenessness, the viciousness of this next killer made national headlines as well. I keep saying it, sometimes money, being spoiled, giving your kids too much, the best of everything, that is not. It's not always the answer, and it's not the best way to raise certain kids. It's just not. it's it's, it's a fact. Sometimes your kids, especially your teenage kids, they got to grow up on their own. They they got to learn the hard way. You cannot keep spooning like spoon feeding and spoiling them with every little thing. You can't do everything for them because they will grow up to become too dependent on you, their parents. And they grow up expecting you to do everything for them. Some kids, especially teenagers, they are, I'm not going to lie, they are just ungrateful little shits. And you could actually be raising a button psychopath and don't even know it. By by giving them, by simply by giving them too much. 15-year-old Nicholas Wagoner Browning had everything in his childhood you could possibly dream of. Nicholas' uh, father, who was 45-year-old John W. Browning Esquire, was a very successful real estate attorney who practiced with the firm Royston, Mueller, McLean, and Reed for almost 20 years. The firm was the oldest law firm in Baltimore County. And Nicholas' mother who was 44-year-old Tamara Browning, was a stay-at-home mom who was also the president of the PTA at her son's school. Nicholas had two younger brothers, 13-year-old Gregory Browning and 11-year-old Benjamin Browning, who were both excellent students at Cockeysville Middle School. Nicholas himself was a stellar honor roll sophomore at Delaney High School in Timonium where he played varsity varsity lacrosse and was on the varsity golf team. Nicholas even played the cello. And the family wasn't all about making money and, you know, materialistic things and stuff like that either, because although Nicholas' father was a successful attorney, he also was a compassionate scoutmaster and church leader. Nicholas' father, he passed on his scout teachings to his son Nicholas, and Nicholas, in particular, was a Boy Scout himself and was well on his way to becoming an Eagle Scout. And he had just finished a prayer garden at his church, which was one of the, you know, requirements or tasks that he had to do before he eventually became an Eagle Scout. Now, this picture perfect family, they lived in a half a million dollar house, colonial farm like house, in the Ten nine hundred block of powers avenue in Cockeysville, and the family also had a vacation home at deep creek lake in garrett county with all of this wealth and affluence the browning family was easy one of the richest families in the neighborhood but money is not everything people that have money know that money is not everything and it can't necessarily bring you peace According to a few of Nicholas' friends at school, Nicholas wasn't this straight-laced, preppy, mature student with good grades who never got into any trouble like he was trying to portray to his family. Apparently, according to a few of Nicholas' friends, Nicholas had a side to him that he didn't always show to his family. Nicholas' friends commented to the press that uh, Nicholas was rude, he was inconsiderate to minority minority races, they said that Nicholas made fun of handicapped people and he made fun of people who were disabled or dis, you know, or had disabilities and who were mentally ill. Many of Nicholas' friends also told the press that Nicholas was ridiculously spoiled. They said that Nicholas often bragged about how much money his parents had and how much he had a disdain for poor people. And they said that... Uh, Nicholas was mean and he was rude to his little brothers and that he beat him up all the time and teased him all the time, made him cry and stuff like that. They also said that Nicholas was a bully to his classmates and that he secretly had a drinking problem despite his young age of 15. But all of this was nothing really. I mean, compared to what he would say about his parents. Nicholas friends told the press that Nicholas would make jokes all the time about killing his parents. To the point where it just wasn't funny. I mean, the cockiness, the rudeness, the jokes about... Oh, I wish my, my parents weren't here. I'm just going to kill them. The, my family got money, so we're better than you attitude. All of that... It must have completely went to Nicholas's his head. Because for some reason... He felt that he was 15. He should be able to do whatever he wanted, when he wanted, without anybody telling him what to do. And Nicholas didn't want to listen to anybody, nobody, including his parents. Nicholas was spoiled, uh, a brat, whatever you want to call it, flat out. And when you got a spoiled, overgrown teenager who's used to getting his own way about everything... Eventually, you're bound to have disaster if there's no boundaries and no discipline. Friday, February 1st, 2008, a week before his 16th birthday, Nicholas stayed the night over his friend's house, which was not too far from his parents' house. Nicholas had argued with his father early in the day because the family had a planned trip to Western Merlin. But Nicholas was like, he didn't want to go on a trip. He didn't, I mean, he's so spoiled. He don't even want to go on the family vacation trip or whatever. He wanted to stay home and party with his friends. So in the middle of the night, something came over him. And around four in the morning, Nicholas left his friend's house to go back to his home where he lived. Once he got there, he found his father sleeping on a couch in the living room. Nicholas grabbed his father's 9mm handgun, strapped a pair of gloves on, and while his father slept, Nicholas pumped a bullet into his father's head with no hesitation, killing him. Then, as his father lay dying on the couch in the living room, Nicholas went upstairs to where his mother was sleeping in her bed. Then he raised the gun and pulled the trigger again, hitting her in the head, killing her. As if killing his parents wasn't tragic enough, Nicholas went into his little brother's bedroom and shot 13-year-old Gregory Browning in the head, taking his life. The noise must have woken up Nicholas' youngest brother, who was 11-year-old Benjamin Browning, because when Nicholas went into his room to shoot him also, the little boy raised up his hand to basically subconsciously block a flying bullet and Nicholas managed to shoot him not only in his hand to prevent uh you know the bullet but Nicholas shot him in the head as well ending his life after killing his family Nicholas ransacked the house to make the murder seem like it was a robbery then he tossed the gun in some bushes that was close to his house and hid the key to the gun safe under his mattress then Nicholas just calmly went back over to his friend's house acted like nothing was out of the ordinary and spent most of the remaining day over his friend's house playing video games like this was just a normal day that's a psychopath around five that same evening the friend's parents must have been like it's time for Nick to go home I mean he's been over here all day and all night you know, hanging over here playing video games. Either way, around 5 p.m., Nicholas' friend's mother gave Nicholas a ride back to his house and she waited outside to make sure he got in safely. But as she waited, Nicholas came running back outside talking about somebody killed his parents. He ended up calling 911 himself to report that he just came home from being out with his friends and family. I mean, without being out with his friends. And found that his father was unconscious and not breathing. And had blood coming out his nose. When uh, Baltimore County police officers showed up at the home. They quickly found all four members of Nicholas' immediate family had all been shot in the head. And were pronounced dead at the scene. From the jump, the whole scene ain't look right to them. I mean, it just didn't. It, It just... In this area and just it's just in the right, and you're the only one alive. I mean you got no sign of forced entry. You got four people shot in a luxury home. You got the oldest son who conveniently, just conveniently, just happened to be away from the home when all of this happened. Um he's not shot, but something is still out of Nicholas' demeanor that was way too calm. It was too calculating, too sinister too psychotic like I said I don't know how why people think detectives and the police like they are stupid and ain't used to hearing lies every day they could immediately just tell that something wasn't right something wasn't clicking something wasn't adding up not just because of Nicholas demeanor and his behavior but because Nicholas was constantly changing his story just one lie or one stutter after the next so they decided to bring him in for more questions and When they brought him down to the station, you know, well, Nicholas agreed to talk to him. Of course, at first, Nicholas told the detectives that he didn't know what happened and that he didn't know why his parents were killed. Because he knew that his parents had money, maybe. He was telling them maybe it was a robbery. I mean, we did have money. I mean, my parents had X amount of money in in the bank and they had this bound of bonds and whatever and life insurance. And Nicholas thought that this explanation would fly. Because also, their home had just been, you know, recently broken into a few days before his parents were killed. So he tried to link that, that break-in to the robbery. You know, maybe the robbers came back, he thought. But like I said, cops are not stupid. And when Nicholas swore that he had been at his friend's house playing video games while his parents were being killed, those same friends told the detectives, wait a minute, hold up he wasn't here the whole time they were like "Uh uh-uh don't do that they had already told the detectives that at some point Nicholas did leave their home for a period of time and when he came back to their home that he just acted like it was normal when the detectives confronted Nicholas with this information he was like all right you got me he just went on and confessed it took him six hours and a double bacon cheeseburger with fries from Burger King to get Nicholas to confess to what he had done. In the most calmest, the most unbothered, the most nonchalant, the most psychotic voice I've ever heard, Nicholas carefully described how he killed his family. While munching on his food, Nicholas told the detectives that he shot his father in the head because he thought that his father was an alcoholic child abuser who constantly abused him. In his own words, Nicholas told the detectives, this was his words, he said, I just realized that I I just couldn't walk away from that and then I shot my mom in her upstairs bedroom. When describing how and why he shot his younger brothers, Nicholas told the detectives in his own words that he shot them in the head because he believed that their deaths would be quicker and more painless. He was like, I thought if I was, you know, if if no one was there to say anything, that my story would go because I was the only one. After confessing to the detectives that he killed his family, Nicholas was arrested around 1 a.m., charged as an adult with four counts of first degree murder and held without bail. Nicholas not once showed an ounce of remorse for killing his family. Not the whole time while he was being questioned, he ain't shed a tear. He didn't like, oh my God, I can't believe I did this. The murder of the beloved attorney and his family completely shocked and devastated the community. And about 1,300 people showed up at the Trinity Assembly of God Church in Timonium to pay respect to the family at their funeral. And more than 500 people got together and gathered at the... County Home Park in Cockeysville for a candlelight vigil to show honor to the family, but also uh, to show support, strangely, for Nicholas. Yeah, I said it. Even though Nicholas had just confessed to killing his mother, father, and his little brothers, Nicholas' extended family still supported him 100%, and they gave a statement to the press that said, in their words, our concern and love goes out to Nick. Whatever else lies ahead, he's a member of our family and will have our support. Now, Nicholas, uh, he eventually uh, went, his maternal grandfather, even went as far as writing the judge before Nicholas was sentenced, a letter. He wrote the judge a letter saying, I have no doubt that Nick was mentally and physically abused for most of his life and that Tammy chose to become an enabler during the last few years of her life. Look, either way, Nicholas accepted a plea deal um, after he pled to four counts of first-degree murder. At Nicholas' sentencing hearing, prosecutors told the court that basically Nicholas had no real motive to kill his family other than the notion or the idea that Nicholas simply didn't want nobody telling him what to do. And that Nicholas killed his younger brothers because he knew that his parents had life insurance and he wanted it and he wanted it all the money for himself. They also added that this crime was so heinous that Nicholas Browning should never get out of jail. When Nicholas was allowed to speak this time, he cried so much that he couldn't even get the words out and his attorney had to read his statement that read, I'm so sorry, words can't describe what I did I would give my own life I so badly want to take away your pain (sighs) oh man now Nicholas received four life sentences with the possibility for parole that day now when you consider uh, with good behavior time credits Nicholas could be eligible for parole in as early as in 2031 after he would have served 23 years in prison six years after nicholas received his quadruple life sentence he asked a judge for a modification in his original life sentence like so he could receive treatment at the cushy uh patuxent institution uh they got a youth offender uh treatment program that's housed that's inside the production institution and he kind of felt like he made the qualifications because he was young and he should go but a judge denied that request So Nicholas kept busy while in regular state prison writing articles, and in 2021, he received the 2021 Media for Just Society Award for his uh, piece or writing in the category of media by a person who is incarcerated. Nicholas won first place in their prison writing contest, where he wrote an essay entitled Little Gardens, Growing Up in Prison. Nicholas also tried to make new friends, and he developed a prison pen pal profile that read, "On the inevitable difficult days, a quiet afternoon in my cell with some good music is diverting. Metaphorical escape is a diverting metaphorical escape. I'm partial to indie rock. I've tried my best to make some semblance of a life here. I've been incredibly fortunate." To have family and friends who have taught me so much, showered me so much love. They have helped me to grow beyond the scared, angry, and broken child I was. Something must have been up with that family, I ain't gonna lie, because more than 30 years before Nicholas killed his family, Nicholas' father's, his 15-year-old sister, basically Nicholas' aunt, was also accidentally shot in the head with a 22 caliber rifle by her teenage brother in 1973. Her brother had been cleaning the gun when it accidentally when he accidentally shot and killed his sister. The family all supported each other through that ordeal too. Um the same thing like 30 years earlier, they all was like, you know, we all going to stick together and as recent as in February of 2023, that same house where Nicholas shot his parents is the same house where another like murder incident occurred that led to another murder. Not involving Nicholas, but it was like a whole other family. Nigga, Nicholas case, um, that's a whole other story. But either way, that house was involved with another homicide. It, it's something about that house up there. But Nicholas case, um, it received national attention. It has been featured on a number of TV, TV networks, including uh, Killer Kids and Investigation Discovery. Now, you already know why I chose this case. You have got to be under a rock if you have not heard about the Nicholas Browning case, if you're into true crime and you're from Maryland. Or even if you're from, not even will will say not even from Baltimore, but if you're from the state of Maryland, if you have not heard of Nicholas Browning, you're truly not a true crime fan. So that's why I left this case as Uh, one of the most notorious Parasite cases because Nicholas seemed to be just a normal teen, a normal spoiled teenager. But something was loose. Something was off. Um, Something was obviously off, especially, you know, not just to shoot your parents like that, but your two brothers simply because you wanted all the money to yourself, even if you thought you were going to get it. But you didn't want them to be able to snitch on what you had done psychotic the messed up thing about it is that believe it or not like i said from the beginning of this podcast um most people that have killed their parents eventually get out they eventually get out for some even if they were convicted of first degree and especially if they were juveniles and especially if there was a premonition of some type of abuse that was considered into why they were sentenced but in this particular case he'll get out someday you know, uh they said he he's eligible for parole in 2031, two thousand thirty one three That's what seven years from now? That's not that long for killing four people. Eventually he'll be released. And I wanna say this too, I mean I'm all for family support, but damn at y'all don't cut it off at some point? I don't I didn't know it was really that deep. Uh ugh. It would be really hard for me to do that, to be that extremely supportive. And, you know, he said, I understand he's a member of our family and stuff like that. But to really be supportive when he wiped out his entire family for really no apparent good reason. there was I mean, if his parents were abusive like that, why were there never any claims or never any charges or never any investigations or any issues with DSS or anything like that? Why were there never any complaints about it until now? Just saying, um, to this day, there has to be a better reason than that. I'm just not buying it. I mean, I think it was more like what the prosecution said. He was spoiled and he wanted to do what he wanted to do. Some kids are just like that. I kid you not. Some, especially that 15 to 18, 19 age, you can't tell them what to do. They are literally just like that. Um... I know people, by me being a paralegal, I know people that worked for uh, Nicholas's father. And they all said that he was cool. They said he was generous. They said he was a an attorney that was easy to talk to. He wasn't argumentative and bossy and, you know, bitchy like some lawyers can be. Trust me, I know. But he was one of those type of lawyers that were easily relatable and who didn't deserve to have his life taken As well as the life of his wife and his other two kids, Um, I hope that when uh, Nicholas does go up for parole, that his parole is denied. He don't deserve to get off for killing four people in your family, and for no apparent for no apparent reason. I mean, come on. Last I checked, I mean, come on. But in the state of Maryland, you you never know. It wouldn't even surprise me at all if one day he's released. And moving right on into this episode's Unsolved Homicide. And just like in every single episode that has been in this podcast, although a lot of attention and focus is placed on homicide cases that they may have received a lot of press, a lot of attention, a lot of media coverage, this podcast also shines a light on the many homicide cases that we see in this state that do not receive a lot of attention. They don't receive a lot of press. If any attention at all. These type of murders are so common in this state. That there's not a lot of time to really focus on just one. I mean, I'm I'm being serious. This, Maryland is a small state. But it has a lot of crime. Um, sometimes when a person gets murdered in this lovely state of Maryland. You don't hear nothing else about it. Because um, we are already hearing about another homicide. Um, it's... Like, you might hear the initial report of a person being killed, and that's it. And the number of homicides that are unsolved in this state, it's completely, completely unbelievably uh, unbelievable. It's, it's obvious that the homicide detectives, they cannot do everything themselves, like what you see on the First 48 or uh, court or crime TV and stuff like that. In Maryland, it's not like that. Homicide detectives are often overworked, underpaid, understressed and flat out outnumbered and kept busy all the time. But what happens to those cases where nobody is talking at all? What happens when there are absolutely no clues, no evidence, no witnesses whatsoever? Well, what happens to the cases where because of the victim's past or the victim's lifestyle where it seems like the detectives ain't really trying to do nothing. They ain't trying to do no investigating because the victim, quote-unquote, they had it coming. You know, what happens to those types of homicide cases? Do the killer or killers simply, do they just, like, get away with murder? It just seems like literally nothing is done with these forgotten homicides, not because nobody cares anymore, but because the public simply, they just forgot about it because we already being, you know, it's already another homicide. It's like we have been become immune to homicides in the state of Maryland. Well, on this podcast, although I do talk a lot about cases where the murder, they did receive a lot of attention and notoriety on the flip side a focus is also placed on homicide cases that did not receive the amount of attention that they deserve. And with that being said, this episode's unsolved homicide is the shooting murder of 37-year-old Donna Lee Blalock. On November 14th, 1996, a pickup truck came crashing into a telephone pole in the 3600 block of Rockdale Terrace in Windsor Mill. Inside the pickup truck was the body of 37-year-old Donna Lee Blalock, and she had been shot in her upper body. The police still don't have any clues, and they need your help. So you already know what time it is. You already know what I'm about to say. If you have any information that you want to provide that can lead to an arrest or a conviction in this unsolved homicide, please call Baltimore County Detectives at 410-307-2020 or Metro Crime Stoppers at 1-866-7-LOCKUP. Or you can text your tip to CRIMES, C-R-I-M-E-S, or on your numeric keypad, it's two seven four three six. Once again, those numbers are you can call Baltimore County Detectives at four one zero three zero seven two zero two zero or Metro Crime Stoppers at one eight six six seven lockup or you can text your tip to CRIMES or Crimes. Or on your numeric keypad, those numbers are 27436. There is a cash reward of up to $2,000 for any information leading to an arrest or conviction in this unsolved homicide. And you can remain anonymous when you provide your tip. Thank you so much for tuning into this week of the season finale of Season 8 of Maryland's Most notorious murders please be sure to subscribe to this podcast via spotify for updates on future spine tingling hair raising eye popping episodes and for paid subscribers be sure to check out the real the raw the uncensored version of why i decided to start a true crime podcast a lot of people think that i just woke up one day and then boom out of nowhere there's a podcast but nope that's not even half the truth There's a real therapeutic message to this whole true crime world of gore and mayhem and blood and and all of that that I live in. And if you click on the episode entitled Why I Do What I Do, you'll understand more about why I'm so weird, so crazy, so fascinated with true crime. I also want my listeners to know that uh, the beginning of Season 9, which will be coming in the next couple weeks, that's when I will be releasing the documentary... Um, uh, that I was, you know, basically talking about all through season eight, the documentary version, the film version of the podcast episode number one, which focused on accused child murderers Adon Canella and Paula Carpio Espinosa. That will be released within the next couple weeks, um, um, you know, that will coincide with the beginning of the very first episode of season nine. And when the documentary um it will be available uh i mean it was produced by Savvy life productions and it was filmed on location in baltimore city and once it is available for download i will definitely upload it to the website i will definitely keep you guys posted as to where you can download it and while you're at it stop on over to the new website which is uh maryland's most notorious murders.com and maryland is spelled mds the abbreviated version, so Maryland's most notorious murders dot com, where you can access all episodes of this podcast, and you can check out the different seasons that we have focused on, like uh, relationship killers, sick and twisted type of murders, you know, teen murders, anything. Um, you can also find uh, links to all of my true crime books that are loosely related to this podcast entitled. Maryland's most notorious murders, 1990 to 2008. Um, Maryland's unsolved homicides, Volume One, and my local bestsellers, *Until I Get Caught*, the true story of a serial rapist in Baltimore, and *Junkie*, a true Baltimore story, and *Child of Baltimore*. All of these books are available on Amazon in ebook um, version and also paperback version. Or you can also send me. Um, a message on on the website and I'll be able to send you a signed copy of these books if you so cho- choose uh, and wish to, and desire and you can also check me out on uh season one of payback which airs for the TV one network you can check me out on the oxygen network for black widow murders where I did profile Maryland's female serial killer Josephine gray Or you can check me out on uh, TV1's Justice By Any Means, TV1's Fatal Attraction, where I profiled the North Carolina child murderer uh, Peter Moses. And you can also find me hosting Killer Kids for the LMN Network, where I profiled teen killers Sarah Cetrone and Jason DeLong, which were also profiled for, um, I think it was episode four, for this particular season for this podcast. Um, once the documentary will be available, you'll be able to find the links here at Maryland's Most Please be sure to tune in on in the next couple weeks where another gruesome, high profile homicide occurring in Maryland with a whole new theme, whole new season will be profiled. It will be examined and it will be discussed on Maryland's Most Notorious Murders. And this has been a Savage Life production.